This is how we overcome We're moving out Keep us up Reaching to the world Arms open Arms open Yeah This is how we practice well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we're glad that you're with us today, friends. We are concluding our series. We've been doing this Epiphany Tide, taking a look at little epiphanies we've gleaned uh, in our ministry lives over books that have shaped our faith, our theology, our ministry, um, things that are not as obvious or on the nose as the Bible, but not things that are just pleasure reading, things that have made an impact on us. We've looked at the practical uh, things like... uh, Part time is plenty that uh, Sarah shared with us last time. We've taken a look at uh, historical theology and uh, the legacy of uh, racism in church denominations in the Bible told them so. Uh, we took a look at uh, critique of church culture and just random Howard and Willimon stuff from um, uh, Resident Aliens. Today, um, what are we doing? So today we are going to give some honorable mentions. Each one of us have picked out uh, two books that have impacted our ministries and our theology over the years. And so we're just going to kind of give you the title, the author, basic information, um, and hopes that maybe you'll check some of them out. So, so for folks who are, are listening, then we're going to make sure if you can't pick up names or titles as you're listening to us, although we'll make sure to mention them, we're going to give description, but also check the the. Mm-hmm info on this episode and you can find your own very own reading list of things we found helpful so yeah kick us (laughs) off erica so my first one um and i was telling even sarah this earlier before we start recording i can't believe this didn't stand out earlier in the series it's called the epic of eden a christian entry into the old testament by sandra richter um this is the book i had to read for my old testament class in seminary and to this day, I still reference this book 15 years later. Um, when I teach about the Old Testament, uh, it's been turned into a Bible study. Um, but it, it just gives, it gave me a different idea and perspective to come at the Old Testament of how life was back then. Um, the family structure, the, the national structure of the Hebrew people and the Jewish people. Um, and how all that connects then to the New Testament. So it's not just the Old Testament, but like the last chapter connects that then to Jesus and how that impacts how we read the New Testament. Um, made me cry. Love it. I uh, would recommend it to anyone. It's probably more so for pastors and people a little bit more in-depth theologically speaking. Mm-hmm. I don't think, like I said, it's been about 15 years since I've actually read through it. Um, I don't remember it being terribly difficult. Um, but definitely if you have an interest in the Old Testament, want to learn more about the Old Testament um, and get a better understanding of how to read it well, this is, I highly recommend this book. Nice. Can I ask, um, as you interacted with this book, were there places where like you found yourself like um, challenged or like pushing back or places where it was just sort of like all brand new. Oh yeah. I love what you say. Are there other places where it was, it was creative or helpful for you and sort of like uh, 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 wrestling with what she taught or how, how, how did you interact with it? I don't remember a lot of wrestling. Again, it's been a lot of, I really should just reread the whole book. Uh, Cause I've done the Bible study multiple times now with my churches. Um, that's based off of this, mm-hmm. but that's its own separate thing. It doesn't actually use this physical book. Okay. Um, just some of the ideas and concepts, but it just opened my eyes to um, to family structure 
and like household structure in the Old Testament. Because when we, when we as 21st century Christians read the Old Testament, we are reading from our perspective, from our time frame, from, you know, yeah. and clearly that was so, so different. Like it, it, you can't even begin to explain how different it would have been to a, even to a first century reader, mm-hmm. um, let alone a BCE reader sure. of scripture. Um, and so it, it was mostly just like, oh, I didn't know this and I didn't know that. And like all these things that I just, was introduced uh, to about the old Testament because I don't remember necessarily getting a lot of old Testament um, sermons or teaching growing mm-hmm. up in church. Okay. Um, and definitely not on this level. Like if I okay. did, it was some of the, the big famous passages from like Isaiah or Genesis or Exodus. Gotcha. Like mm-hmm. it didn't go into the depths of the old Testament. Like she does. We ready to feature our next one? Sure. So it's funny, maybe not surprising that you ask a bunch of pastors about other books that are important and they're going to be like things that are biblical, like along that line of of biblical explanation. But for me, um, I I wanted to make sure to mention an author who I found really, really influential in my faith and theology, and that's Robert Farrar Capon. Um, And he's written a whole wide, wide, wide variety. Some of his books are... Um, just sort of sheer theology. Some are sort of like church history. But what I think has stayed with me the most are, um, and I'm going to count it as one book because I have it all in one volume. Um, He wrote three books on the parables and you can get it as one called Kingdom Grace Judgment. Uh, and he, there, his, his three different books on the parables of Jesus, the parables of the kingdom, the parables of grace, the parables of judgment. And um, what I find so fascinating and compelling about Capon is he's not a slouch when it comes to working with the biblical text or the the Greek of it or being conversant with 20 centuries of Christian history, but he is also utterly convinced that the entire message of Jesus and of scripture from beginning to end is one of utter, sheer, reckless, scandalous grace. And he brings the receipts for why the stories of Jesus really are about that. Um, And I find myself when I read him, often he will sound very, very different from any other commentary I have. Um, And yet when you read him on his terms, um, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes total and perfect sense. How come I couldn't recognize that before? Um, And has this way of bringing Jesus to life as someone who absolutely was the life of the party and was convinced that the reign of God is this unending celebration uh, into which all people are drawn and welcomed. um, And he doesn't feel like he has to um, hedge that or pull punches in the name of sounding um, more restrained or respectable. So I, I, I find him so compelling, even if sometimes it takes me a while to get into his his way of thinking or speaking so do you recommend seminary book that you read like how did you come across this book steve you know the way i first got introduced to him i think when i was in was on on my internship um i was sitting one day in my internship congregation in the lobby i think waiting around for a meeting or something like that and they had this like bookcase they didn't have a whole big library there but there was a book of his and the title was the mystery of christ and why we don't get it and um, that's like it, it started. And I remember reading the first couple of chapters and hating it and thinking, oh, I don't like this guy at all. Um, and then later talking to my internship supervisor who really, really liked uh, Capon and would say, like, no, give him a try or, you know, re-, and, and I can remember digging a little further in 
Um, and I had not really even done a whole lot more reading of his until I came to, um, I think it was when I came to Pennsylvania and we would have a text study at, at one of the, the churches. Uh, and um, I think it was at that point that his name got kicked around once or twice. Uh, we had an Episcopal colleague, uh, Robert Farrar Capon is an Episcopal priest. And every so often our, our good um, colleague in the Episcopal tradition would um, make a reference, I think, to his hunting the divine fox. And at some point I picked up other books of his and just was like, oh, my goodness, this is this is this surprising, uh, unexpected. But, yeah, he gets it kind of a voice. So uh, it took me a while, but it, it was it was not and it was never required reading, although I wish it would have been now. Okay. Would you recommend him for pastors, for lady, for theologians? Um, Mix honestly, of I think I think. In some sense, everybody should be exposed to some snippet of his. Um, but some parts of what he, the way he writes and the way he speaks, sometimes um, he writes like for people who have lived and wrestled in the life of the church. And so like this, it, I was not where I'd start somebody who um, was completely unfamiliar with Christianity, at least not necessarily because there's mm -hmm. places where he's he's dealing with the angry voices of respectable religion sometime and like for people who are not new like they don't have to know that 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 backstory i guess um i guess i would say there's sometimes too when he will really dig into the weeds on say the new testament greek or something and there it's like that's helpful for me but i'm not i think that might be uh unnecessarily complicated for um people who, who weren't into that there again i'd say it'd be it'd be more helpful to read a section or a chapter and then if you if if that hits you then to go okay what else could i read of his that would would connect with me that kind of thing mm -hmm. so there are times when it can be super duper accessible kingdom grace judgment his books on the parables are a little more in the weeds how about well, for you sarah you, can you share us a, a share a book with us yeah so since it seems like the first round seems to be biblical <laughs> based stuff, um, mine that is along those lines is Manna and Mercy by Daniel Erlander. Yay. And Daniel Erlander is a Lutheran pastor, and I what? believe he wrote Manna and Mercy um, as a confirmation curriculum or to I've, help I've, support that. I've used it that way for sure. That's how I've used it in the past as well. And I love it. It is an overview of the Bible. Um, as uh, I believe the tagline on the cover is something along the lines of a brief history of God's unfolding promise to men. To men, the entire God's, universe. Oh, the entire universe. I was going to yeah. say God's universe. So <laughs> yeah. And it is, it is, uh, it's beautifully illustrated by Erlander mm -hmm. and it, um, it like starts with creation and like this was God's plan and then, oh, it goes askew. And then um, I think that there's a very strong emphasis with the Exodus story and yeah. the, the wilderness mm -hmm. and uh, how God used the wilderness journey as a, almost a school to try to get the uh, God's chosen people back on track of what God has planned. Um, mm -hmm. But how since sin had entered the world and Pharaoh's way is so like prevalent, how that's always tempting us back off the track. And um, and then but it goes through the entire Bible, but it kind of it, it. I love how Erlander weaves the entire story of the Bible together, because I know as we've talked about on this podcast before the Bible is more like a collection of books and stories. It doesn't mm -hmm. always have that 
unified, cohesive message because Mm -hmm. parts of it were written Mm -hmm. at different times for different people in different genres. Like it's, it's not a very cohesive book, but Erlander does manage to to kind of take a look at the Bible with this, like one unifying message of, you know, this is God's promise to us. And then this Mm -hmm. is how God has in the past, like interacted with us through that promise and how that promise continues even today and like oh it's it's a beautiful beautiful book i really appreciate the way you describe that because as someone who's loved this book as well i really appreciate the way he does just as you described to bring disparate stories books and things like that and to find that there Mm -hmm. is a common thread to it and make it accessible that yeah that that's fantastic and you mentioned that you've used this like like i have as a confirmation resource have you used this with um adults and adult education as well have you had experience with that and and how's it gone i have not um i've only used it as confirmation this was actually my confirmation curriculum when i was going through confirmation i think it was fairly new um but yeah this was my confirmation curriculum and so i've used it also um but i know my husband who is um also a pastor, is planning on using this um, hopefully this summer as mm-hmm. a, um, for adults. Cool. As kind of going back to like, a, you know, Bible 101. Yeah. The, the thing I, I like about using it as an adult ed thing is as much as it is accessible for confirmation age, you know, junior high school kind of age kids, um, there's a depth that they might not get into or realize. Mm-hmm. And um, I right before COVID started, we'd started using this where I was serving before. Um, and we had, we were doing it like a, a month at a time. And then COVID threw that a monkey wrench into that. But like the, it was interesting how the same sections that you might get one response from seventh and eighth graders who could maybe kind of understand, like for the adults, it was eye opening because for them, this wasn't their first time hearing these stories, but maybe it was the first time they'd seen them framed or presented in a certain way. And the way, as you mentioned, Daniel Erlander makes such a big deal about how the exodus and wilderness become themes that then are the entire rest of the Bible really sort of dealing with those, those themes and those stories. Um, I think for a lot of people, they grew up with sort of each of these stories are individual isolated episodes, like, you know, watching a TV show. That's not really one arc, but each episode is self-contained and discover, no, there's a whole narrative arc to it. Just sometimes can be eye-opening for people. Cool. Erica, what else can you show us or tell us about? So my other book I have mentioned on this podcast multiple times, um, because again, like Epic of Eden, it has just had such a great influence in my life. I've taught it every church I've served at. It is called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, um, The Path to Spiritual Growth. Um, This book is part of my calling. When I first read it, my pastor was going through it as a sermon series, and um, I really just first like i said got my uh, the beginning of my calling came out of uh, one of his sermons on this book i own like three copies of it i've taught everywhere i've been i've read through it four or five maybe six times now um and it just it talks about various you know some of the classical disciplines of the church i think there's 12 of them in here i should know this by now i've read it enough times um but yeah it just 13 there's technically 13 he's gotten here um yeah, I cannot speak highly enough about this book and really anything Foster writes, but particularly this book um, for the impact it's had on my own personal life and my spiritual growth. 
kinds of things are disciplines? What kinds of things are disciplines? Um, prayer, fasting, those you know, meditation, study. Gotcha. Those are kind of some of the the basics that you you figure are disciplines. He calls those the inward disciplines. Um, then there's disciplines of th- things like simplicity and solitude, mm-hmm. submission, um, which are he he describes as the outward disciplines, mm-hmm. and then the corporate disciplines of confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Okay. I so, own that book. You own that Sorry. book? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I did a summer sermon series with a colleague for a um, like Thursday night service, or like worship mm-hmm. service that we were trading off on. I didn't realize it because we have different covers. Um, yeah, I, I have. Well, I have the new cover too now. <laughs> I have two with this particular cover, and then I have the new cover because um, last time I taught it um, last fall when I first came to this this uh, appointment when I ordered it, they didn't have that cover. Like they had a new 50th anniversary edition or something. So. Yeah. It, it, it is very nicely structured to do a sermon series because mm-hmm. of how like every, every discipline is its own chapter. Yeah. And so you can kind of just take it one chapter at a time of like, all right, well today we're going to talk about like prayer mm-hmm. and um, the, the type of service that we were doing, it was a contemporary service where the sermon was less of a lecture and more of a, you would talk and like introduce the idea. And then it was a discussion. So mm-hmm. like people could and talk that leaves about, itself, yeah, yeah it, it's a great book to, to, for discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like this is one that certainly could be valuable for pastors or leaders, but accessible and written that, that this could be individual or corporately for anybody. Yeah, I did in my first church. My lady did struggle a little bit, um, just because he does use some theological terminology, not a whole lot, um, but it was just stuff that they weren't used to, gotcha. um, and that's nothing against them or against Foster. Um, but yeah, I I think I think it's accessible to you know anyone, maybe with a little bit of uh, church background, mm-hmm. might be just a little bit helpful, but. I think even without much church background, I think it it can be used by folks. I think even um, if you're doing it corporately, you don't even need to have everybody read it and still be able to participate in the discussion. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a solid book, though. Mm -hmm. Thank you for reminding me, Erica. I totally (laughs) forgot about this book. So thanks. I I love Foster. He's just, yeah, he's phenomenal. One of my favorites. Nice. So, Steve, what's your next one? Um, the second one that I wanted to mention as an honorable mention uh, is uh, James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Um, mm. And I remember mm. reading that probably, I don't know, the last within the last five years. It, it's a rel- It was one of his last books, I think. And it was probably my yeah. first real in-depth read of, of James Cone since seminary or college when I'd read just snippets and things like that. Um, and what what sticks in my memory about it is, as the, the title suggests, he sort of talks about um, a, w- a way of, of making sense of what the cross means, that you can't really understand what the cross of Jesus means without understanding the experience of um, seeing it as a, as a tool of the, the, you know, the, the cross of the tool of the empire to dominate, intimidate, and and that Jesus bears the, the cross uh, 
like so many people who've been put to death by powerful uh, structures or people or empires mm-hmm. like lynching happened in the United States. And um, so he he sort of weaves together like how so much of the um, African-American experience in the United States where lynching was this uh, tool used to intimidate people and put them in their place. And on top of that, that the people who were the lynchers, the lynch mobs, saw themselves as being righteous when they did it, right? When they were convinced somebody had done something wrong and they were going to do mob justice rather than, you know, have a trial and find out whether they were or weren't guilty, you know. Um, that he, I mean, he talks and, and spends a fair amount of time going into depth at different points about, like, there are there's photographic records of like people who would get up in their church clothes would go to church and then they'd go celebrate a lynching where there would also be a big you know a picnic and like this was celebrated mm-hmm. for a long time uh in pockets of uh american culture of like you know uh especially white southern christianity that sort of saw this as like yeah it's our duty to uh get rid of the people we think are troublemakers and uh, Cone has this way of of saying, like, do you not get that in the story of Jesus, that's what happens to Jesus? And that whatever other ways we might talk about God's will or salvation happening at the cross, it can't mean that God is um, uh, saying it was it, it's a good or just thing. I mean, like, it, it, it has this way of, of deepening my understanding of what goes on at the cross and avoiding making God to be out like, like like a divine lynch mob you know that it it mm-hmm. god is the one on the underside i think i remember reading this the same summer that i read uh howard thurman's jesus and the disinherited and uh both of those are books that are sort of like you don't really get what god's up to in jesus until you understand that god has a particular place for the people thurman's way of talking about it, it's the people whose backs are against the wall um and then to say like christianity has classically said that where jesus is that's that's God's perspective or vantage or presence in a story. And so that Jesus is the one who gets crucified and bears that violence, especially violence by people who think they're doing right. Um, and in the name of religion or, or name of righteousness and preserving their order of things are putting him to death. Um, so it was haunting in that way. It was not an easy read, but it was a really important one for me. This one, I've read this one too. And I think it was at your recommendation, Steve. I've gotten a lot of books from you. Um, really just opened my eyes to everything that you just said and also just to the Afri- to African-American spirituality in, mm-hmm. in general and just that I how they read scripture um, and how that's different than how I as a white person read scripture mm-hmm. you know and, and the, the connection that they make with um, you know the underdog and, right. and, and Jesus being for the low, like I, I, I talk about that all the time, and I say, you know, Jesus came for the least, last, and lost. But they know what that means because they have yeah. experienced it. So, and for and yeah. for how long that was treated as this is the order of things you don't question it, and that there is this other alternative minority mm-hmm. voice, you know, that no, that God is on the side. God was on the side of freeing the Hebrew slaves. God's on the side that that kind of recognition. It it it's it strikes me. I just this last weekend. Uh, was listening to somebody else's sermon and they happen to be preaching on the book of Philemon, which is, you know, that, that book about um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an escaped slave uh, and he comes to Christ and Paul sort of sends him back to the person who'd previously been his owner or master and saying like, you need to set him free. I'm sending him back, trusting you're going to do that. And Paul lays it on thick, basically saying, this is me the nice way saying, you've got to let him go. If you don't, I'm going to have to turn up the screws harder. Like, but um, the, the, the 
person I was hearing preaching was basically saying that Onesimus was guilty for having run away and that he should have been punished and that what happens in the end is he gets forgiven of his wrongdoing of running away from slavery. And it occurred to me as I was listening, I was like, oh my goodness, I can't hear that story that way anymore. That's like to, to have read Cone is to be like, oh no, that God is not ever on the side of enslavement and God is not ever on the side of you need to be forgiven for having run away. Um mm-hmm. But like that God is always on the side of uh, people being set free and that you don't get to dehumanize other people. Um, And like I realized having listened, like a a version of me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, might not have had that visceral reaction to listening to that. And now it's like, oh, no, we there'd be danger here. Um, So he he clearly Kona has, has affected me in ways I don't even necessarily realize. How about for you, Sarah? Um. So my second book is actually a children's picture book. Um, it is called There's No Wrong Way to Pray. And it's written by Pastor Rebecca Nimke and her then 10-year-old daughter, Kate Watson. And it's illustrated by Liam Darcy. And the pictures are just so cute and adorable. Um, but uh, yeah, it's this mother-daughter team that wrote this book. Um, and it is the book that, I needed to have as a child, but Mm. I didn't because it was written like in the last 10 years or something like that. I don't know how Mm -hmm. old Kate Watson is now, but she's no longer 10. Um, I think I was given this shortly after my oldest son was born by the Synod office. Like it was one of those, like um, the publishing company sent the Synod office a bunch of like new books, like to promote and things. And since we just had it, had a baby, we were given this one and it is so cute. It's basically that there is obviously there's no wrong way to pray. And that seems like such an obvious thing when you say it, but I think a lot of us grow up or even just live our adult lives with a certain image in mind of this is how I should be praying. And then if I'm not praying in that one way, then I'm doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with very strong Southern Baptist influences and my models for faith were my grandparents and they did um, morning devotion time. They retired. So every morning they would get their stuff out for breakfast and then each of them had a Bible and they would read one chapter of the Bible. And then the other person who didn't read would say the morning prayer which to little kid me was the longest prayer ever because they prayed for everybody and anything. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I would just be thinking the milk's getting warm. Like, (laughs) why don't we get out the milk after the prayer? Because the prayer seemed to go on for forever. And so in my head, that's what I think daily devotion should look like. And, um, but like, I have two small children. I work, I do not have time to do that particular ritual, but this book is a great reminder that I need every once in a while that there is no wrong way to pray. My prayer life does not need to look like what my grandparents' prayer life looked like in their retirement. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm not, I'm not retired. Um, and it's fine. There is no wrong way to pray. And I'm going to read just the last page because I don't feel like this is not a spoiler alert because it's just (laughs) it's a beautiful beautiful book when I pray I talk to God wherever I am whatever I'm doing whoever I'm with 
I used to believe there was only one right way to pray, but now I think there's no wrong way to pray. And it's just, just super, super cute illustrations. Nice. Great, solid messaging. It's, it's obviously it's geared towards small children, mm-hmm. but I think it has something worthwhile to remind adults as well. Nice. So yeah, that that's helpful. It sounds like while clearly it's written as children's book, this is one that has spoken to you, even as trained theological professional, you find this continued to be a message you needed. Yeah. Nice. So friends, we've at least introduced you to six new titles you can check out at your discretion and at your leisure with at least a little bit about what each of them might be useful for or uh, how you might use them. Um, We hope you'll join us next time for new conversations and a new series here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.